Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be speaking with Wayne Wilson from Phoenix Varmint Callers, otherwise known as PVCI. Many of you have probably seen them at some of our seminars. They've always had a booth and are very supportive of CHA, and we support them. They always have an annual predator hunting and varmint hunting uh, boot camp for new hunters and for youth in northern Arizona in August every year. Wayne's going to shed some light on what it takes to be successful in order to hunt varmints to include coyotes, foxes, bobcats, uh, what it takes for archery, what it takes for rifle specifically and shotgun, the distances, electronic calling, hand calling, uh, setting up a stand, just all the little intricacies rather than just going out and showing up and thinking that you're going to be successful. Um, yes, we see coyotes everywhere, but they are very cunning. They're very smart and they learn quickly. So if you want to be successful, please listen to this episode and we hope you pick up quite a few extra tidbits so that the next time you're out, you can successfully harvest a fox or a coyote or a bobcat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have Wayne Wilson in studio today from PVCI, Phoenix Varmint Callers. Um, if you saw our last predator hunting seminar, you would have seen him up on stage along with Mike and uh, Dave. He's been with PVCI for quite a while. He's going to shed a lot of light and a lot of techniques, little tips that can... Uh, lead you to be more successful on hunting predators here in Arizona. As always, we have Mikey in studio. How are you, Mikey? We are doing good. We're in air conditioning in the middle of summer in Phoenix, Arizona, so it's it's a good thing. That's a great thing. And Wayne, how are you, sir? I'm doing all right. It's nice and cool in here, so I'm glad I'm not outside. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the key. Um, Wayne, if you want to introduce yourself to everybody, and uh, we'll get rolling. All right, well... Uh, my name's Wayne Wilson. I am a past president for Phoenix Varmints Callers. Been with the club about probably 12, 13 years. Uh, I'm an avid hunter in Arizona. I've been here most of my life. And uh, I've enjoyed hunting deer, elk, javelina, just about everything out there. But, uh, you know, about 12, 13 years ago, got into varmint hunting, and I've been doing it ever since, and uh, absolutely love it. So do we. We... We are going to learn a lot from you today because um, we concentrate more on the big game and we don't concentrate enough on the varmints um, to include coyotes, foxes, um, some of the smaller predators, badgers, uh, what have you. Lots of other places I'm sure um, have open seasons. We're concentrating mostly in Arizona, as most of you know. We're going to be based... Um, talking mostly based on desert and northern Arizona. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to hunt wolves here. Um, some of you other listeners in other states have that uh, blessing 
And uh, I'm sure that's a whole nother game into itself with how smart and how large those creatures are. But we're going to be concentrating mostly on central Arizona uh, desert and kind of maybe some northern Arizona. But they're all the same critters, just different terrain. Um, Wayne, what's one of the biggest questions that you get? Well, I think one of the biggest ones I get, uh, especially in a lot of the seminars, is why. Why should I look at uh, predator hunting, varmint, varmint calling? Uh, what are the different reasons behind that? And, um, you know, for me, that, that was a pretty easy question to answer because, you know, uh, putting in for a big game draw, you don't get drawn all the time. Uh, sometimes it's very hard to get drawn, and you may end up going several years without getting drawn. Being that I'm an avid outdoorsman, I love to four-wheel drive, I love to shoot, I love to shoot my guns. I love to go camping. I love all that stuff outdoors. And hunting always gives me that opportunity to do that. Also to explore Arizona. It's such a beautiful state. There are so many different areas, so many different, um, just different places to go and things to see. And varmint hunting allows me to uh, continue to hone my hunting skills. It keeps my four-wheel drive running all the time. Uh, and it uh, gives me a reason to get out there and, and take my boys out and take, you know, friends and, and other people out and uh, kind of help them enjoy the state and enjoy the, uh, the love of hunting. It gives us a sense of pride if people come from out of state. Um, a lot of people only think of us as the desert, you know, saguaros, lots of other cactus, dry, and right now we are experiencing that like every summer, but if you go up north or if you go even even southern Arizona and you start going to different places that hunting does allow us to go, it sheds new light even on us natives. And if you're willing to try a new place or you're going with a friend that has been there before and they're like, hey, come try this place out, it does allow you to experience a lot of different elevation change, uh, scenery, and weather. And we do take a lot of pride, as anyone does, from their state we do have a lot to offer we have lots of big game species but we also have a lot of predators that uh that we can hunt and it does allow you in those seasons that you can't hunt the big game that it is continuing to hone your skills in and practice so um without further ado you're based here maricopa county pvci is based here in maricopa county but you guys do hunts scattered throughout the state and i'm sure you guys do like us the mentored hunts which you you guys do every year in august mm -hmm. yep that's right we pretty much cover the entire state of arizona and uh for those friends and family that i have out of state now i do a lot of uh, kind of coaching and mentoring for them as well for the same reasons you know one of the things about hunting is you know we want to increase the number of game animals in the state we want a better chance of getting drawn and one of the ways of doing that is reducing the numbers of predators that are out there taking those animals. You know, one of the reasons uh, that uh, I like to do it as well is, you know, we have several populations of antelope here in the state. And coyotes are, you know, known to uh, prey on those antelope fawns. And uh, so reducing those numbers helps to grow the populations of the animals that we love to hunt in our big game hunts. Absolutely. And coyotes are continually reproducing at a much faster rate than our antelope do. That's correct. So a little bit of trivia here is uh, if you know that once a, a um, antelope fawn um, is, is 
should we say, pops out, right? Do you have an, any idea how long it takes before that fawn can outrun an adult coyote? I think the great Ray Everidge shared this once, and I, I think it's two weeks. It's actually less than that. It's three days. Three days. Wow. So we do special hunts uh, during the month of May when they're fawning to try and give them those three days. If we can go out and hunt coyotes and even remove one from the pack, it's like a you know, well-formed sports team, right? Yep. If you remove the quarterback, right, it takes a couple of days or a couple of games, whatever, for them to get back in the groove and get into where they're really functioning well as a team. By disrupting the pack, we allow those fawns, those couple of days that they need, to get up on their feet, get going, get their speed up so that they can start to outrun and outmaneuver these predators. That's huge. The only huge, yep. the only hunt for most of us here that's going on, if you got drawn or if you're helping people or beginning of May, would be turkey hunts. So we really have no excuse to not go hunt some coyotes or foxes in May, right? Right. Um, everybody, I think... In the current times in social media, people are being more aware. Everybody has this stereotypical of what coyotes eat, and they're eating rodents, they're eating smaller things. But if anyone's seen videos posted nowadays, they are calculated killing machines that can take bigger prey items. And you're seeing mature four by four muleys that, you know, a pack of two to four are biting on the haunches and biting at the tendons and weakening them until they can't run anymore. And you would think it's a, it's a nice, healthy, mature buck that they're bringing down, um, whether it's learned behavior that someone, you know, the alpha taught them or however they're accomplishing that, but you're seeing it more and more. And maybe people are documenting it and it's been happening forever or we're just being made more aware of it. And it is interesting that everybody thinks, you know, in the snow that they're jumping up and listening for, you know, voles and mice and stuff that are climbing underground or groundhogs, and they still do eat, you know, our our little, um, uh, not groundhog, well, probably groundhogs too, but our little uh, prairie dogs, mm-hmm. and and you know, different different little rodents like that. But they are capable of taking much larger game. Yes, I've actually seen them in the field uh, up in Unit Six B, uh, chasing down a full size bull elk pack of seven of them was uh, chasing them down. We actually came across them and watched the entire thing. Mm. And the bull elk ran within about 50 feet of us and stopped. You know, he was sweating, frothing, you know, all down his chest. And he was worn out. He was ready to go down. The coyotes stood there. Now, not wolves, because I know the difference. And the coyotes stood there and watched and waited while this bull elk stood there waiting, right, because he was more afraid of them than he was of us. And we were able to sit there and watch for about 10, 15 minutes till he regained his strength and caught his breath again. And then he ran off. And, of course, you know, we lit fire after the coyotes to, you know, try and chase them off and give him a better chance. But yeah. we've, we've seen them pursue, you know, the largest animals in Arizona. That's incredible. And like you said, it's, you know, it's not a one-on-one. Yeah. It's they start nipping at the heels and they just wear them out a little bit at a time. You know, they, they yep. take turns and. That's all it takes. The tenacity and the the cardiovascular that they have, um, and especially if it, you know, depending on the time, if it's right after the rut, the bulls are going to be all really tired. If it's, you know, during um, 
calving or fawn season of any any of the cervids, any of the deer species, you know, I know up in in 22 and in 6A, we've seen coyotes, and Mikey, you can tell that story. Some of the flats, we haven't seen them in the hills up in the higher country, I and mean, we see them, but we haven't seen their interactions with deer. And you remember that one where uh, a couple of our guys or a couple of CHA members were out in the flats uh, hunting deer, and out of nowhere you could see two does start running around in circles, and then they saw it looked a little bit lower on the high grass, and you could see two coyotes running around. And then in the middle you see a fawn, and those does are doing everything they can uh, to help that fawn survival. And luckily the fawn was able to get up. I'm sure they got a couple bites in, and hopefully it survived. But uh, those were mule deer, you know, running around trying to save it. I we already know coos deer are really flighty, and uh, but they're so much more, you know, smaller that we got to protect those as well. Mm-hmm. Mikey, you got any stories of seeing? No, for sure. They are they're the the how would I put it? They're the the biggest survivors and opportunists I've ever seen. A coyote. I mean, they, whatever's in front of them, they're gonna they're gonna you know put to their advantage. And I've witnessed that over and over and over. I'm and I've seen the same thing. We, like those guys watch those. Coyotes there was a group, and I think they actually snuck in because they thought there was a buck with one of them because they thought they saw. So they were sneaking in, and actually had coyotes running all around them and does around them. And I've witnessed it a number of times. So, but I think the biggest thing with coyotes is whatever that they could take advantage of, they do. You know, and they, and they're very they're probably one of the smartest animals that how they calculate and they don't just do what they do. They actually calculate what they're going to do. It's interesting, mm-hmm. and I think you can kind of talk about that, Wayne, as it relates to Colin. You know, so when you're set, doing a setup for. And you know you're gonna be calling up. These coyotes are hearing you calling, and that is the opportunity. And that is, and they're doing a calculated risk of how am I gonna go get this next meal? So do you want to kind of talk about the calling and the setup on that side of it? So yeah, uh, I think you nailed the uh, hit the nail on the head with that. They are extremely intelligent, which is one of the things that um, kind of makes me enjoy it even more. Is that you're trying to beat them at their own game. So you're in their backyard. They know the terrain. They know the sounds. They know what's going on in that area. And and it's like trying to sneak in your back door when your dog is asleep on the couch, right? You've got to be able to get around and, you know, they've got the, you know, their vision is excellent. Their sense of smell is excellent. Their hearing is excellent. They're the best at everything and they learn quickly. So when we go out and we try and set up on our stands, we try and take that into account. So we have to look at, what direction uh, is the wind blowing, right? Because we don't want them to smell us. What direction, you know, am I walking into the sun? Am I going to set up somewhere and not be able to see? So I start calling, and then I realize, wait a minute, the sun is just coming over the horizon in the exact direction I think I'm going to shoot. So you, you've got to do that. You've got to set up so that you're not in a red ant pile. I've done that myself couple yep. of times <laughs> where you yep. realize I think we've all been there <laughs> part way in that you're into that uh, red ant pile. Um, yep. But you've got to set up so that they don't smell you. They don't see you. They don't hear you. And so you use, you know, everything to your advantage as well to conceal yourself, you know, until you can get them within range for whatever weapon you happen to be using, whether that's archery, shotgun or rifle. Yep. So we have a number of areas that are very um, public, with vehicles so 
in my opinion, I can be a little more sloppy as it relates to hiding my vehicle, driving in, because that's normal. But then there's other areas that are semi-remote where a vehicle comes down, and that is like alarms and whistles because that's not a normal. So you want to kind of talk about how you would set up and how you would go look based on a popular area. It would be a lot of, lot of vehicles, a lot of human activity on weekends with all the side-by-sides and mm-hmm. going to other areas where maybe you're the only truck that they hear for two weeks potentially. Right. Yeah, so um, I'm kind of an old hot rodder, so I love the sound of a, you know, deep sound of a V8. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, um, I've actually got that on my truck, um, but that's not an abnormal sound for a coyote to hear coming down a country road. Or if I'm hunting, you know, farms, fields, something like that. A farm truck is not something that they're not used to seeing. They're there all the time. They're used to seeing people. When I set up in an area like that, I'm going to try and use a little bit more stealth, knowing that they're not probably going to go walking across the open terrain all on their own if there's a ditch or a canal or something else where they can stay hidden to get from you know point A to point B. Uh, if I'm out in the forest or up in the junipers, then you know they're not going to be as used to the different kinds of noise and things, so I'm going to have to set up differently there. Um, you know, as well. So I, I really try and take that into account wherever I'm going to go. And on a different trip, depending on what I'm seeing, I may hit different areas. I may hit farm fields in the morning. I may hit, um, you know, something else in the afternoon. And I may, if I'm not seeing anything at all, I may drive 60 or 90 miles to another area that I know might be, might be better, you know, because you're also taking into account what else is going out? Did I did I you know get up to Wickenburg and realize hey they're having onion days, and you've got you know ten times normal number of people? Yep. Or is there a side by side race that I didn't know about, or some sort of other you know tournament something like that? You know you need to have different areas and kind of prepare in advance for the areas that you think you're going to be going to. Exactly, and the great thing about our farm fields is it's surrounded by desert everywhere, and there's usually mountain ranges close by, so. That's a great way to kind of have diversity just mm-hmm. within one trip. So Exactly. Prior to going out, I mean, we're talking about setting up on those stands. It's no different than people that have their ground blinds or their tree stands when they're hunting deer or when they're hunting elk. Nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people have some sort of plan prior to going out there instead of haphazardly just randomly picking a place. What goes through your process of being able to scout for those stands and all the, that time and energy spent in that? Because if you went out and you're seeing a farm field that you've either know you have access to or have hunted in the past and you have no luck there, I don't think anybody wants to go drive 60 miles right. and not think that they have a chance at that next one whether it's because you've successfully harvested a coyote or, or a predator there, or you did that research and you did all that scouting and you know that the fruits of your labor will pay off. Well, I think the beauty of uh, varmint hunting is you don't spend that much time in any one area. So if you make a bad call and if you go to an area and you just don't see anything at all, you just get up and move. So generally, we don't spend more than about 15 to 20 minutes on any stand versus, you know, say deer elk. If you're in a tree stand, you may be there all day Absolutely. or hours and hours and hours. So if there's something you don't, that you, that you didn't realize was going to be there, if the, you know, if the sun's wrong, if the wind is wrong, if there's some other event or there just happens to be a new hornet's nest 
right? That's attached itself to your tree stand. That's a bad day. Right. <laughs> yeah. yep. So the beauty of that is you can change it multiple times during the day. So when I set up, um, depending on the time of year, so I'm also an avid motorcyclist. I've traveled most of the roads in uh, southwestern U.S. On, a, on my street bike, but in Arizona specifically, I'm an off-roader, so I take my dirt bike and I do a lot of scouting there. And you wouldn't think that cruising through the desert at 40, 50 miles an hour, you're going to see a whole lot. But it's funny, I'll come across a wash and see a set of, of footprints, and it's like, you're screeching yep. to a halt to see yeah. what is that and what's the sign. Exactly. And then I'll look at the scat, and I'll do kind of a quick look around. You know, what's in the scat? What are they eating? Mm -hmm. Is it summertime when it's hot? They don't want to generate a lot of extra body heat, heat so they're not eating meat right? They may be eating a lot of mesquite beans. Yep. Am I hunting in an area with a lot of mesquite beans? Or if it's, you know, um, some, some other animal that I'm hunting, I, I tend to look for, you know, water. I look for scat and I look for tracks. Yep. And then if I can specifically look for the areas, because, you know, dog tracks look very similar. So if you've got a lot of hikers in the area, you've got to differentiate that. That's key. And yep. you can yep. look at the scat and generally tell the difference yep. between, you know, what a dog's been eating and what a coyote's been eating. Absolutely. Um, so I'll look at that and then I'll look, you know, make sure there's water. I'll look at, you know, what's the general, you know, the wind in Arizona generally comes up from the southwest and goes to the northeast. That'll change if you're on top of a mountain or down at the base of a mountain, depending on the time of day, you know, in Arizona as the yep. ground heats up. So I'll try and go through kind of almost a little schedule. Where am I going to be at what point in the day? And then I'll look at maps. I'll look, I do a lot with Google Maps. Yep. It's um, addicting. It is, for it sure. It is, isn't it? So I'm doing all my elk scouting right now. Google Earth and Huge. Onyx are addicting. Yep. It is. Sure. And it's funny because you can be sitting in a uh, conference call at work. Not that I've ever <laughs> done this. And have yep. Google Maps open on your other screen and be scrolling around the state looking for different areas. You know, yep. where, where's the water at? What's the terrain like? Uh, what's in pro what is it in proximity to? You know, if we know that coyotes will travel a certain distance, is this within a reasonable distance for what they can get to? Do they have what they need? Do they have places to hide and get away from it? Yep. And then where can, I, where can I approach from within, you know, the time of day, the wind, things like that, and, and have a, a reasonable chance of calling them in? Yep. And speaking of wind, so on calm days, mild wind days, and there's other days the wind's just moving, you know. And I think about like turkey hunt. When the wind's blowing, you're done. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it sucks. you got to be right on top of them. So talk about the wind since you kind of brought that up a few times. So how does wind play in as it relates to calling? Does it does it change how your whole approach is if it's a windy it, day it to a calm day? It does. Um, if the wind is too much, it just it makes it pretty difficult. But that can also work to your advantage. Um, if you're in an area where the only approach is the wind's coming from your back, a lot of times you can get elevation. And if you can get that elevation as the wind goes by, it's going to carry your scent, but it's going to carry it over their head. Yep. So, you know, knowing that, like the wind on a bad wind day, it's still better than working, right? Absolutely. And, 100%. You know, so you can kind of try and use that a little bit to your advantage, get some, get some height. You can get into your calling. You can use lower, deeper sounds that may carry a little bit farther in the wind. And you may shorten the distance between your stands. Or you may just say, you know what? 
I'm not hunting this big open area. I'm going to go to where it's thicker. Yep. You know, so when Smart. I talk about, you know what, I'm going to jump in the truck and I'm going to drive an hour away. Well, I know that even though it's windy, there are pockets in there that aren't going to be as, as windy. It's not going to blow the sound away. But then the wind can also help cover your scent and cover your sound. Yep. Exactly. So there are advantages to it. As much as I hate it. Yep. It's yep. still better than exactly, working. and I was always been brought up as if it's super windy, go to the thickest, nastiest stuff you can find, and just do lots of stands and quarter mile to half a mile, and just keep stopping. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that becomes you might only do six miles, but you might also do eight or ten stands that six miles, and it's very fruitful. You know, because say can't with the, the in the thickness and the wind blowing, usually they're gonna be in close proximity, and that gives you a lot of opportunity to set up and, and kind of be on the advantage side instead of the disadvantage side. And that brings up a good point, too, because as you change your terrain, you may want to change the weapon that you're using. I'm a rifle guy, so I yes. love rifles, prefer rifles. A lot of, a lot of people are shotgun guys or, yep. or, or you know archery guys. And um, if I go into that really thick stuff, now my you know, 3 to 10 scope isn't so great because yep. you can't see anything. Yep. So, you know, there are options... Um, there are over-unders out there that are a rifle barrel uh, with a shotgun barrel. That gives you kind of the best of both worlds. Or some people will carry a rifle and a shotgun and leave one in the truck, and depending on where they're going, yep. you know, so you can kind of custom tailor the area you're going to be in for, you know, your visibility and what you think you're going to use. Exactly, and I think I learned something from you guys because Chet's always harassed me because <laughs> I'm a six-five guy, and I know you're – Maybe a 6.5 guy, but you brought up an incredible point during our seminar is the 6.5 is so fast, and you want to have a round that puts that animal on the ground and doesn't just blow through them. They don't even realize they're hit. So you want to kind of talk about that real quick? Because I think that's an important part that us archers and us guys that may be shotgun guys, we don't think about the load as it relates to the animal and the idea that you want that 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 concussion to hit that animal and they basically drop and they're not running off for 30, 40, 50 yards and don't even know they're hit. Yeah. So as an ethical hunter, one of the things I try and you know, I pride myself in is selecting the right, the right round that's going to put the animal down instantly. You know, I, I, I'll preface this to say I do own a six, five, <laughs> but I don't use it for varmint hunting. Yep. You know, on foxes and bobcats, it's just, it's way too big around yep. and it, yep. it's going to blow them in half. Yep. And for a lot of that, you know, I, I prefer small, light calibers. 204 Ruger is one of my favorites. It's not very common. It was, it was po- very popular, what, 10, 12 years ago or so, 20 years ago. Um, 223 is my number one go-to round. And 22-250, they're small bullets. Um, they're very fast, and they have the potential to dump all of that energy in that small animal which gives you that hydrostatic shock that a lot of people talk about, whether you believe in it or not. Um, I'm a firm believer. I've harvested quite a few animals, and I've seen the difference between the calibers. So I tend to prefer those two, 22250, 223, and 204. Specifically the the 223 because it's economical. You can find ammunition for it anywhere. You've got a, a broad array of ammunition that you can use. And it's good for all of the animals that you'd want to take down. Yep, it's great. It's great for us. Most everybody. No, it's true. because Everybody has an AR nowadays yep. for the most part. Right. And that's, you know, you can get a bolt action in 223, but even with a 16-inch barrel on a on an AR-15 platform, you're good 
you know, right. we're calling them in. The whole point of calling them in is to get them closer. But should you take a shot or a poke farther away, that AR is more than capable of a couple hundred yard shot any day of the week. Um, and and in all fairness to shotgunners, uh, because got to mention that too, um, you want to use a round that's got enough um, oomph behind it to be able to knock that animal down and understand that it's not traveling the velocity of an AR-15. And so, you know, you need to have enough lead behind that to be able to knock them down and put them down hard and then understand, too, that the distances are going to be different. So, you know, I, without offending a lot of people, I'll say, you know, I limit my shotgunning to 45, maybe 50 yards at the most. And that's having taken it out, tested it, shot it, um, checked my load. Uh, I've done all of that kind of stuff. So I know the range that I'm comfortable with because, like I said, if I put them down, I want them to go down. Yep. I, don't want, I don't want them to know what, what hit them. Yep, exactly. And I've always been told to think about if you're a turkey hunter, your max distance turkey hunting should be the max distance as a coyote. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of the way I always kind of looked at it. You know, it's at 40 to 60 yards based on your gun, the size, and the type of ammo, if it's a four load or five load or six load, and what, you've, what you feel comfortable in. So is there a specific size that you would do? Yeah, between um, a lot of people like the uh, nickel-plated BB. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more of a fan of number four buck. I think that's probably the most common yep. uh, that's used in that. And it's readily available. It is. You it can is find number available. four buckshot at most sporting good places. Um, and shotgun ammo, depending on the season, obviously is sometimes hard to find. But number four buckshot is, for the most part, readily available. Most people don't reload shotgun. So go in there and buy in a box of shells just to have if you if you did carry both which i think is a great idea go there with a rifle and go there with a shotgun knowing you don't know what what the the circumstances will present so why not put the odds in your favor that's right and with a shotgun one one other thing i'll point out is it's important to pattern your shotgun take it out and test it on a piece of paper Uh, because you know you don't know what's going to happen at different distances and you'd be amazed in most shotguns how quickly that pattern opens up so you're not hitting a coyote with 42 pellets. You might be hitting them with six or seven. Right. And if, if they're in the wrong part of the animal, it's not going to work. You know, where with a rifle, I'm going to aim for the heart, you know, the front front quarter, take out those front legs, knock them down. With a shotgun, I tend to aim more for the head yep. because that's what yeah. I want is, you know, Just head, like turkey. head and neck. Yep. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's all about putting them down quickly. Hundred percent. Um, with that patterning comes using a choke. If you're using a shotgun, do you use a full choke then when you're coyote hunting or varmint hunting? I don't because a number four buck is such a big round that you know those are basically twenty four caliber, right? And you try and squeeze those through a full choke, it's really hard on the end of that shotgun. Okay. So I tend to use um, just more of a moderate choke, but I test it. In those calibers, and especially if you're using any kind of, I don't recommend steel, but a lot of those, they don't compress at all. Right. So if you want to buy a new shotgun barrel, but you'll blow the choke right at the end of that. Right. And it's good that um, the shotgun obviously has a lot more kick than an AR, but kind of piggyback on being able to move. It's a perfect setup to get children involved into hunting because their attention span isn't the same. They don't, 
you you know, would try to remember way back when we were kids, sitting still is hard and sitting there to try to find an animal when you're not good at looking at binos or when you're not even, you know, with, with your plain eye scanning out there while, you know, your dad or friend or mentor is taking them out. You got an AR that has very limited kick that most kids, you know, setting up on some sort of bipod shooting sticks, something to support them, some sort of rest and being able to move. Once you have those areas nailed down and you're spending every 15 minutes, they, they can withstand that attention span of 15 minutes. And then you put the, put it in their favor that you're, you have an animal that's inquisitive. So it's going to be coming in. There's going to be movement that you're looking for. You will touch on, you know, some different techniques in order to support that rifle so that they're not, they're, you know, muscles and they're not getting fatigued and, and you get to pick up and move. Okay. Nothing's here. Let's move. Perfect. You know, versus if you're in a tree stand with a kid, that's a long day, um, that, that you need to build that up over years and not just, you know, put them in maybe a ground blind they could take a nap while you're paying attention, but a tree stand a uh, little harder to take a nap in. But it, yeah. some of the things to put it in a, um, in a kid's favor with it being able to move around and easier, what are some of the techniques, and, and even for adults, to support that rifle or to support that shotgun? One, you don't want it to stand out because the whole point of us is the concealment and movement as limited as possible, but... Do you want to talk about some of the things that you utilize, especially on your guys' yeah. PVC, so PVC I mentored I'll, camp? I'll tell you with my kids, one of the big fears that they have is the shotgun recoil. You know, it's it's hard enough for me, you know, uh, shooting a three-inch magnum out of a 12-gauge has a significant amount of recoil. Mm-hmm. And your ability to follow up quickly and see the target while it's going is can be difficult. And that's far too much for any of my kids. So when I started my kids, I started most of them with either a 223 or a 204 Ruger. Um, with the 204, you can actually see the round hit. There's so little recoil that you can see it hit. And uh, when you hit a coyote with one of those, you know, because you can watch the impact. You can actually see that hydrostatic shock as it hits them and imparts that that. That Ener- kinetic energy is delivered to their vitals. Correct. So with that, with my kids, I wanted them to get used to being able to see the animal, you know, sight it down. I know I, I saw, I looked for years, um, Cricket just came out with a twenty-two mag hmm. in their little Cricket, you know, $149 yeah. rifles. Yeah. I just saw one up at J&G sales up in Prescott a oh. couple of days ago, hmm. and I was this close to buying, <laughs> but my kids have all grown up. Yep. My youngest is seventeen now, um, but my daughters have gone out. My wife has gone out, and they're just they're more comfortable with the smaller rifles, yep. the smaller calibers. Yep, for sure. So I've done that. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is um, so I started shooting with a suppressor. Um, one of the best things I ever did. Uh, it took a year to get it, and um, with that, it was just amazing. Um, I remember back hunting with a couple of my buddies and we were shooting at a coyote running through a field. I had a guy on the left of me and a guy on the right of me and boy, we were letting him have it. And I was so deaf. My ears were ringing for two or three days after that. And I remember how horrible that was. I mean, it was great in the moment, Yep. but uh, I got a suppressor. Um, 
I, I'm a Silencer Co. fan. Um, I've got a hybrid that I've got um, on that'll fit just about all my rifles. And uh, when hunting with it, it adds about eight ounces to the end of your barrel. So you got to get used to that, walking under trees, things like that, because it sticks out a little bit more when it's on your shoulder. But uh, when it does go off, um, it reduces the amount of noise, and it's a different noise than the animals are used to hearing. So when they hear that, you know, because you've still got the crack of the bullet that they're hearing, or if you hit them, they're not. Right. And yep. uh, it's just a different sound. It comes mm-hmm. across of more of a muffled kind of boom or sounds like a 22 long rifle. So in the case where it's windy or let's say you did miss, they don't quite understand that sound and they tend to stick around for a few extra seconds waiting to see what exactly was that? What was that? You know, because there are sounds that naturally occur in nature and they're just not, just not quite sure what that is. Hmm. So I've noticed with that, that has given me an opportunity on multiple accounts to put a second round you know, those extra couple seconds mean, can change everything. Uh, exactly. And now I would not say that it has um, changed it in the fact that others would not come in because we want uh, to, uh, I have to mention one of my good buddies, Craig Boskeeter, that I hunt with a lot. And uh, we've hunted uh, quite a bit. We hunted one stand and uh, we're not using suppressors. And we had seven coyotes come in on this one stand each one about two minutes apart from each other. Incredible. And these guns were loud. You know, they were 243s, and they were significantly loud. That, that didn't affect the animals at all. It did not stop them from coming in. Hmm. But with a suppressor, I've noticed more often than not, if there are multiples or things like that, it changes the sound a little bit. But better than anything, I don't have to wear earplugs. That's huge. And I like <clears throat> to hear if yep. I'm sitting on a watering hole or something, there are a lot of dry leaves, and I hear that something crackling walking around behind me i don't need earplugs or earmuffs or any of that stuff to get in the way or bother me i can hear what's going on and not be worried about damaging my ears um it's true beneficial twofold huge absolutely yeah because my ears are trash from that it's true it's huge use it or lose it i think one of the tv shows (laughs) uh says either you use ear protection of some sort or you're going to lose it you don't ever get that back Right. Just like brain cells, <laughs> once we lose it, they're yep. they're not coming back, and it is crucial. People that hunt for their whole life, oftentimes, you know, it could be something real quick, and you want to take that shot, and you don't have time to put earplugs or earmuffs or what have you on real quick, and the totality of those adding up over the years, or you know, plenty of hunting partners, it's definitely going to affect your ears. Yep. Unfortunately, it does take a long time with the paperwork, the extra money uh, from the feds in order to get that tax stamp and in order to get the, the silencer itself. But when you have like that that is opened up to like a, a 308, it can be used on multiple calibers if, if it has a threaded barrel. Or if you have unlimited funds, then buy one for each specific caliber. But yep. uh, if you had one, you know, a 6.5 is like a 264, so if you had a threaded barrel on anything less than that and you bought one for that big, mm-hmm. it could work on a 204 up to a 6.5. And it reduces and the recoil and it reduces the sound. That's right. And it will last you, if you take care of it, will last you the rest of your life. 
So there are not a lot of tools that you'll buy that you'll use for the rest of your life. It's true. And receive that much of a benefit. So it is an investment just like anything else. You know, you can generally get one for less than a set of tires. Yeah. So that's and, huge. You know, that's, <coughs> and your, huge. your hunting partner will thank you. Absolutely. Yep. And yours in the lifetime. It's true. It's Speaking true. of hunting partners, let's talk about kind of the setup on what goes through your mind if you're hunting by yourself versus if you're going out there with one buddy or a couple buddies on how you, um, within eyesight or within earshot of each other, but the safety that goes behind that so that when you're swinging or left and right, depending on if you're right-handed or left-handed, to put, you know, the most in your favor to be able to swing on an animal, but also we're all about safety on our mentored hunts and, and preach that at our different camps. Um, if you want to touch a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when, when we hunt, uh, depending on whether you're right or left-handed, it's important to know what your partner is, if they're right or left-handed. So if you think about putting the, um, I'll say rifle, into your shoulder, if you're right-handed, you're going to put it into the pocket of your right shoulder. That's going to allow you to turn. If you turn to the left, you can turn almost 180 degrees. But if you go to turn to the yep. right, you've got a very, very limited amount of swing that you Correct. can go to. Correct. Yep. So if I'm hunting a specific area or even, say, a watering hole, I'm going to set up so that I'm not facing exactly where I think I'm going to shoot. It's going to be somewhere off to my left. And usually it's somewhere in about that 45-degree area where it's comfortable for me to swing. So with my partner, um, depending on whether they're left and right, I'll either put him on the left or the right side of me. Or if there are multiple people, we'll, like at the boot camp that we have coming up, we'll actually sit people down and, and quietly talk to them about, this is the area that you're going to shoot in. And we'll actually, I'll actually take my foot, draw a little line in the dirt, and say, you're going to swing from here to here. And these areas don't even have to overlap because coyotes have these four legs that get yeah, them, get them to move around a exactly. lot. Exactly. And then before we sit down, everybody makes sure that they can see everybody else <clears throat> and that they know that they're not going to swing into somebody else's area. So that's, you know, foremost over anything else is safety and making sure because you can't take that bullet back and these bullets are designed to have a devastating effect on these animals. Yep. You would not want to do that to, to yep. a friend exactly. or an enemy. For sure. So we, we spend a lot of time with that. Um, and then at the end of a stand, before we're done, we'll make sure that, so we use a little hand calls and we'll either call off. So with my, uh, uh, my buddy that I hunt with, we'll either do a little whistle <clears throat> to each other or we're, we're generally where we can see each other. We'll have hand motions or something to call it off. If I'm saying, hey, I'm done calling, I think we're done here, we've been here 17 minutes, I'm not seeing anything, if I whistle to him and he doesn't whistle back, he may have seen something. Yep. So I'll continue to call, and I'll call for another five minutes. If still don't see anything, I'll whistle back to him, or I'll make some hand motions. If he still doesn't respond... I either need to throw a rock and wake him up, yep. right? <clears throat> yeah. or, it's or one of two him. options. <laughs> yep. So there was a, an area we were hunting a while back, and uh, we were down in a wash, and a bobcat had come in. I was, I was calling, and I was not able to see the bobcat from where I was. We both had shotguns, and he was just, just a few feet off to my right. And I'd been calling, 
And he had seen this bobcat come in. So I call off the stand and he doesn't respond. And I'm like, come on, dude, like it's hot. This camouflage, it's absorbing the sun. And I'm like, this is just, I, yep. I'm sweating. It's running down my face. I'm like, let's end this stand. Yep. So he doesn't respond. So I keep calling, calling, calling. Look over. He's still not responding. He's just frozen. And I'm like, dude, come on. Like, I'm dying here. Like, should I? Okay. So I just keep calling. Should I stand well, up or should I keep doing this? Yep, exactly. exactly. And uh, so then afterwards, after the stand, it, the bobcat had snuck in and somehow snuck out. Wow. But I had never seen that. Yeah. And because it's a shotgun, right? Like I said, I'm a rifle guy. I prefer rifles. With a shotgun, that area of swing has to be that much more precise. Yep. Because now you're throwing a cone of lead in an area, and you don't control where those pellets go. Correct. With a rifle, you generally, that's why I prefer it, I'm sorry to all the shotgunners, <laughs> with a yep. rifle, you're, you, know, you can generally know that I'm going to be within you know, two to three inches of an exact area, and that gives me a lot of confidence. Yep. With a shotgun, I don't have that, so we'll set up differently and maybe face even farther apart. Right. Um, if I've got a kid or a novice, somebody like you know that, that's with me, they are right next to me, so that they can't move out of that zone without me being able to you know grab visually and physically, visually and physically yep. <clears throat> stop Smart. that or train it, yeah, and and make a correction. Absolutely. So we'll set up set up differently there. Yeah, the rifle's just obviously far more accurate at at longer range or even at closer range, but. We have that no matter what animal you're hunting. That vantage point can change everything. Mm-hmm. And we laugh on our on our mentored hunt earlier this year in January where the guys are sitting down on a rock and glassing and trying to do hand signals or, you know, if there is self-service and you're sitting down and after hiking up the mountain, they're like, dude, it's it's right there. It's right behind that rock. How do you not see it? You're like, I don't see that rock from where I'm at. I'm 500 yards away and 30 degrees incline. You see something completely different and it goes back to having patience and knowing your buddies, but it can get frustrating. Mm -hmm. And And, and one thing you mentioned too is, is I think it was Fred bear and he had like the seven rules of hunting. And I apologize because I don't have this memorized, but basically it was like the three S's, right? Sit down, sit still, and shut up, right? Yep. And I can't emphasize that enough yep. in environment hunting is you have to be, you know, it's like statue, right? You have to be still. You can't make any noise. And you're, you're trying to communicate with your partner, whoever's out there or, or a group of people, yep. and you can't move. So, yep. you know, if you can do Morse code with your eyelids, although yep, exactly. I've been on stands <laughs> where I swear the coyotes picked that up. Um, but you know, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really important to be able to communicate with everybody and and see what they're doing and stay safe, you know, all at the same time and have fun. Yep. Exactly. And that's a great point because it's amazing how you can set up the call and say you have an e-caller and you have a decoy say it's 30 yards, 25 yards in front of you, how those coyotes can actually look through that. And they're looking at the surroundings and pick you off, even though Mm -hmm. with what you're hoping for them to see is, is in a different area. So you right. want, to, and, want to expand on that? Because that, that yeah, seems so, like that's when I'm always getting caught and guilty in my early days, constantly, constantly. So one of the things where I, I think specifically for archers is an e-caller may be a, a huge advantage. When you're hand calling, you know, they can pinpoint where you're at 
within a, you know, from half a mile away. They know exactly where you're at. Yep. And um, with uh, with an e-caller, it's it allows you to uh, put that caller out at at uh, you know. My apologies. No worries. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can We're put, all busy. Yeah. You can put the e-caller out at, you know, 25 yards, 50 yards, even 100 yards if you're using a rifle. And so when they're coming in, they're focused in a different direction. So if you're sitting down and sitting still and shutting up, there's a good chance they're not going to notice you. So that gives you an advantage. If you've got a bow and arrow, you've got to have enough time, unless you're Hercules, you're not going to keep that thing drawn all day long. Yes, you've got to have time for them to come in and allow you the chance to draw that and release it. You've also got to have a lot shorter range yep. because you're not shooting at, you know, 3,500 feet per second. You might be 250 feet per second. Yep. And they're going to hear the arrow, and they're going to hear that bow yep. before the arrow even gets there. For sure. So you've got to set up differently and, and you know, allow for that. So that's where an e-caller may be an advantage. And especially if you're trying to do it where, you know, a bow takes both hands. Yep. So you, you just can't do it with one. Exactly. So that's where, you know, having that or having a buddy who can, who can work that call and set it up so that you can kind of almost create a zone to allow you to draw that bow and release it before the animal's aware that you're there. Exactly. Do you, on the e-callers, and most of them are – a majority of them now have some sort of, you know, tassel or a little bit of fur, fake fur on it that gets their attention. Do you prefer that or do you prefer just the call itself with just the audible? I actually use both. Okay. So depending on where I'm at, if it's an area that may be high in bobcats, um, you have to set it up so that they can't see that movement until they're within your sights. Once they see the movement, a bobcat's just going to sit down and stare. He's going to wait it out. They are incredibly patient. If it's a coyote, they'll either um, be wary of it, and they may circle the area, or they may be uh, they may send in a female, someone that's younger in the pack. They're very smart and organized. They communicate very well. They may send in another member of the pack to check that out. Interesting. So, uh, we had a, an occasion down south. Where, like I said, we were sitting on a watering hole. There were a lot of uh, dry leaves in the area. And we were using an electronic collar. It was about 20 feet in front of me. And a cat came out of the desert, launched off the bank of this watering hole, and came straight at me. So um, it's kind of like on Zorro, you know, where the yeah. guy jokes around, yeah, it's the second time I've shot that guy flying through the air. <laughs> so I, I, I harvest this coyote. And we hear this leaves crackling in the back. And just something was going back and forth and back and forth. Around off to the right comes another coyote that comes in. And my buddy harvests it. And those leaves are still going. And so we keep calling. And a few minutes later, in comes this large male. And we harvested him. But that that, Incredible. that, that group of them, the, the, uh, it's my understanding, my belief, that the male sent in both females to investigate first. He was old, wise, his teeth were all worn out, and you could just tell he was an old, wise coat. And these two younger females came in, and but he was almost like watching, orchestrating the whole thing. 
that shows how smart and calculated they are that a lot of people underestimate them and we chalk it up to, you know, just a darn old coyote, but yeah. there's a reason why they can survive out in the wild in an urban area and uh, they're so successful. Mm-hmm. So what about how you start calling all of a sudden they start yipping? So with so how they start talking and then barking and then you're trying to bark back at them. So yeah, so, usually so, usually you're busted. So usually so, yes. So usually if you hear the exactly. So if you so if you're starting to call and all of a sudden you start hearing them bark and yip and there's almost like they're getting comical at you. Yeah, it's I, I kind of think it's almost like every time Cabela's has a sale on e-collars. Yep. Right. Everybody goes out and buys one and they, you know they they start playing uh, you know some squealing rabbit and. They they understand they learn because yep. the last guy shot and missed and they're not going to make that mistake again. So yep. they hear that sound, they may be a half mile off and they're letting you know. Yep, you know, exactly. The jig is up. I I got your number, pal. <laughs> yep. And then all of a sudden you start hearing other ones like in the surrounding area. So mm-hmm. I'm sure you've witnessed that. So it's almost like they're they're communicating to all their things. Next you get four or five coyotes yipping and kind of doing that same kind of bark at each other. Yeah. And interesting. At, yeah. at that point, I'll I'll generally leave and yep. come back. Exactly. Because I can come back later, even if it's, you know, an hour or two hours later and, you know, kind of change the scenario to where they might be like, oh, I haven't heard this sound before. Exactly. Or now maybe I'm hand calling instead of e-calling. Yep. And that's a great point because now you've located potential coyotes that you want to come back and hunt. So mm-hmm. so instead of forcing it, that's where the patience of a bobcat saying, okay, now I got you figured out. I'm going to study it and I'm going to return. And I know you got, I'm right inside your guys' bedroom say yeah because remember how intelligent they are like don't you can't under underestimate a coyote they are so intelligent they learn so quickly yep so i've got three dogs and my dogs can dance they can you know i can do the bang thing and they flop on the floor and play dead and my boxer will let me stack biscuits on her nose i mean they're smart animals yep and but yet they're still kind of dumb because they don't have to do it to survive they just do it for treats exactly you know, and for the coyote, it's a matter of, you know, life and death and, you know, who gets to eat and who doesn't. And their sense of smell and hearing is even higher than a domesticated dog mm-hmm. because of the fact that it, their, their livelihood depends on it. Mm-hmm. Their sense of smell, I, I mean, I, I don't want to quote what, what level it is, but everybody says, you know, when you do a Euro, Euro skull, you see that nasal cavity and how, how intricate it is. And you can tell that, you know, those, we know the eyesight. And it's funny that you were talking about the, the shotgun range and you're, where you're aiming. If you don't coyote hunt, but you're a diehard turkey hunter, you can use and parallel those same skills because you're, exactly. you're looking at the head. You can't move because their eyesight is so great. Um, it's, it's interesting that some of the prey items for a coyote, you use the same hunting tactics. Exactly. And you have to look for those secondary animals as well. So, you know, if you've got a turkey coming in, they're not usually completely alone. There's probably something else somewhere in the proximity. If you've got a coyote um, or, you know, a fox, you know, a lot of times they come from a litter. You know, when you get a double or a triple that comes in, a lot of times they're from the, they may be from the same litter. Yep. Um, I got a couple of kit foxes down south that were brothers. And they both came in within a couple minutes of each other. The same thing. They were just out together, you know. Yep, doing their thing. and Doing their thing, and now they're doing it on my wall, hanging on my wall. You know, that's cool. Great stuff. 
Great stuff. So talking about the species, what are um, we got bobcat, we got coyote, and we have three different fox species here, correct? Yeah, so we've got gray fox, red fox, and kit fox. Red fox, pretty much you won't see except in the, I believe it's the northeast up on the reservation areas. So we don't ever see those or, you know, hunt them. You'll get gray fox that will pick up red color patterns throughout, during the year, depending on yep. what they're eating and things like that. So if you get a fox, it's generally a gray fox yep. and either gray or gray and red. And then kit fox. And uh, the I've one, only seen a few of those. They're pretty rare. Yeah, they're, they're pretty rare to they are. To find. And their ear-to-face ratio, their ears are much larger than a gray fox, correct? Correct. If you're looking at them, that's one way of telling them they're smaller. They're the I mean, smallest yeah, they're, of all three species. Yeah, they're they're tiny. Gray fox is already smaller than a coyote, and a kit fox is really small. It looks like a coyote pup. Yep. But they are really cool, really, really cool species, and you're still helping other animals um, if you can if you can successfully harvest those. Can you touch on some of the rules and regulations? Because that's a big hiccup. You know, we know it's sun up to sundown on big game species, but some rules have changed that allow nighttime hunting mm-hmm. or the use of lights um, and then longer periods of, you know, all year long versus just a certain two-week or one-month period. Yeah, so generally what we do is we try and align our hunting season with the fur-bearing season which is generally um, from, uh, starts on or about August 1st and ends the end of March, like March 31st. Um, for a lot of us that are looking for hides, those hides in the desert, just like your, your canine at home, yep. are not very good yep. in August, September, you know, even November. So there are a lot of times that I'll wait till October, November before I even start to go out. So it's generally easier and like, you know, when the, when the pups are out there, August, September, they're young, they're dumb, they don't know what's going on. Um, so if you're, not, if you're not looking for hides, a lot of times that's a good time to go. Um, we talked about like in May, so fur-bearing season ends the end of March. So with that, bobcats and foxes fall off the list. At that point, it's only coyote. But that's what you're going after anyway because the coyotes are what are taking down the fawns. Correct. Exactly. And but then that's also for the diehards because it starts to get really warm mm-hmm. in March. And at yep. that, you know, at that point, you're kind of competing with uh, fishing season because it's yeah. it spring starts, bites on. Yep. That's exactly. right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So so talk about kind of twofold is one is that fawning seasons is really good because it's usually in the wide open. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you know, you're, you're, you're moving, you're shaking, you're, you're fast action. And how being a big game hunter, how that makes you actually a better shot in those situations. Because you, you may only get a deer tag every three years now. I mean, some right. of the some of the better units, which is crazy, and there's no more leftovers. Or longer. Or longer, or there's no leftovers. So now you have a buck jump up, and it's it's blowing and going. You want to kind of talk about how yeah, just going I, up there and helping out, I mean, just the, the amount of opportunity is going to make you a better shot to where when you do get that deer tag, or that oak tag, it's going to make uh, you. I think it's like anything else. You know, you get good at what you practice. So personally, I probably shoot 1,000 to 1,200 rounds through my rifles every year. Um, that's not a lot for somebody that would be like a PRS shooter or something like that, but yeah. I'm not shooting at paper. So I'm out in the field, and, you know, we'll stop. We'll pick out, you know, 
a can or a rock or, you know, something out there that's, that's at different distances. And so you get used to, you know, when you're not sitting at a table, you know, you can go up to Ben Avery and have the, the perfect stand yep. and, you know, you're in the shade. There's not too much, well, there's a lot of noise, but you know, there's not a, not a lot of other like distraction, that kind of thing. It's yeah, different. Minimize the variables up there. Right. It's different when you're sitting on a hill and your shooting sticks keep sliding down yeah. or you're in some shale, the wind's blowing and you've got, you know, uh, some, you know, juniper branches that fell down the, you know, the neck of your shirt and yeah, itching, exactly. or, you, you know, you're exactly. fighting mosquitoes or that, that, uh, red ant hill. Yep. When you get out there and, um, you know, you're in real life scenarios and, and you're shooting at different things and then you're evaluating, what did I, what did I do? Right. Did I hit it? Did I miss it? Um, I have, uh, I'm a big fan of vortex, uh, vortex optics. Yep. Uh, it's not the highest dollar stuff out there, but it's pricey enough. And, uh, I've had very good luck with their optics. Yep. But last year had a case where we'd been shooting, shooting, shooting. Everything was great. And uh, took a shot at a coyote about 250 yards. And I missed. And I remember I was, I was shocked. I, I don't miss. I, I should have had that. Yeah. And it was a headshot. And I'm waiting for that coconut sound that, you know, yep. when, it, when it hits. And I didn't get that. And I'm like something's wrong so i took it you know took another shot same thing i never got any report back and i thought oh my gosh what's going on went to another area and, and went to test my scope yep. and turned out it had moved about four moa off to the right i've never had it happen before I've never had it happen since but i had to turn around and readjust my scope but i knew i was comfortable enough with i knew my round I yep. knew the distance. Yep. I knew, you know, I was comfortable where I was at and I practiced enough. I knew I should have had that. So when I missed twice, it was time to stop, yep. go to another area and, and, and recheck the rifle. Um, so, you know, that's where a lot of practice, practicing in different, you know, scenarios at different times, temperatures are going to make a difference depending on whether you're buying factory ammo or you're hand loading your own. A lot of the powders are, temperature independent so some powders will build more pressure the warmer they get and others not so much so if you're testing your loads so say you're you're doing if you're a reloader you're reloading in the summer your rifle's gonna shoot with different pressure or if your ammo your gun's been sitting in the sun it's it's heat soaked it's going to be different than if you're up hunting in flagstaff and it's 15 degrees outside so that's where you should shoot all different scenarios, different times of the year, different altitudes, and get used to how that, you know, that firearm. Some of the best shooters in the world, I think, use one firearm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of uh, the, uh, I forgot the guy's name now, the White Feather. Um, a lot of the, uh, Which the old snipers. Oh. Uh, they use one gun through multiple wars, through... You know, after the war, they brought it home and used it to, to hunt animals with. Right. They knew the firearm. They knew the round. They knew the velocity, the drop. They knew how to hit with that. Yep. With that. Yeah, they, you know, holdover versus even using their optics. Mm -hmm. If it the elevation's already capped out, right. and those guys are tack drivers, even, you know, Kentucky windage. Exactly. 
So I think there's a lot to be said for yep. practicing yep. time in the field. Yep. And then you get to know not only your your weapon, but also how's your vehicle holding up? You know, what it, you know, is there anything it needs before the next big hunt? You know, if I've got a big elk hunt coming up, I certainly want to make sure all my gear is in is in good shape before Absolutely. before I hit that. For sure. So I've got a cow tag uh, in October this year, and I'm going to be doing a lot of hunting um, before that, just making sure all my gear's up to snuff, so I don't get up there to to yep. you know elk elk camp and you know find the elk out in the field and then come to find out my gun just goes click because exactly. something's wrong. Yeah, right? and that's happened to a lot of people. That preparation goes a long way that people underestimate. Yep. And if you practice it on an animal that you can hunt all the time like that, like a like a varmint, mm-hmm. you know, not to take anything away from varmint hunting, if you go and see that you have your mouth calls and you have your e-collar and you have your rifle and you have your shotgun and the correct, you know, gear, make it a habit of, you know, going through those steps because it would be horrible. We've all forgotten something. It's just our, you know, it's just nature. We've all been there. You haven't been hunting long enough if you haven't missed or if you haven't forgotten something. But it it, it is a gut-wrenching when you're like, oh, man. Or, yep. you know, you brought one magazine, if it if it is box-fed, and that's all you got. You forgot, you forgot extra ammo. Or, you know, if you were an archer, you forgot extra broadheads. It's That's not fun. That's yeah. true. For me, it's usually... I get up in the morning, it's dark outside, head out to the area, realize I'm kind of looking into the sun, and I forgot my hat. Oh, yeah. So I don't oh, have yeah. a, a bill to you yep. know, kind of shade that, and I'm kicking myself for missing. Yep, I'm guilty on that one, too. And I don't have any hair to protect me, so it's going to be a burnt day. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have our – I think everybody has gained a lot. I've gained a lot of knowledge off of this. Uh, I'm going to practice – Far more often. Um, is there anything else that we've failed to cover that you would like to shed, shed some light on for varmint calling and varmint hunting? Well, I think for a lot of us, it takes years and years of uh, experience and practice, time in the field to learn a lot of this stuff. Uh, Phoenix Varmint Callers has a boot camp that's coming up August 11th through 13th up at Vincent Ranch, which is up by Woods Canyon Lake. And it's a free camp. It's... Uh, we put it on with our partners, which is Arizona Elk Society and National Wildlife Turkey Federation. There are several other groups that, that support this camp. And what we can do in that camp, it's free. We've got fantastic food. And it's a full day on Saturday of instruction, um, as well as talking about, we'll be talking about camouflage, safety, equipment in the field, how to approach and set up a stand. Um, What do you need to do? How do you use a collar? All of that stuff that would take you the equivalent of 20 years to learn, we're going to teach in one day. So uh, registration is open right now. We've got about another 25 slots open before it fills up. Um, And then uh, at that point, we'll either close it or look at the opportunity because we we do buy the food and plan it and all that. So we'll look at whether we need to open up more spaces or not. But I encourage anybody who's interested in this, um, it's free. All you have to do is show up, and we'll teach you everything you need to know to get started. And then we have monthly meetings uh, the first Wednesday of every month. Uh, it's down on. Uh, it's in downtown Glendale, off Glendale Avenue, and and that information is on our website. It's pvci.org, and you can go on there and find out information about the boot camp as well and how to register and any any of that. 
And I think that's probably one of the best ways to get up to speed quickly. And then I think one other thing that I didn't mention is as far as how to get up the learning curve faster is it's always nice to have a friend to talk to or somebody else to kind of pick their brain and, and uh, say, hey, I've got this. Does this work? Or, hey, what am I doing wrong? I've, I've gone out calling over and over and over, and I've never called anything in. Um, is come to a lot of the events. Um, we have, uh, during the season, we have monthly hunts that we go out and do. We do, um, we support the disabled veterans as well. We have special hunts for them twice a year. With all of that, uh, we've got fantastic members of the club. They're very, very friendly. And I just encourage people to come out. Um, the meetings are free. Um, sit down next to somebody, introduce yourself, and just start talking. And uh, that's probably the best way to, to get good at it fast and get up that learning curve. Agreed. Very family-friendly organization that we, we can't speak highly enough about. If any of you have been to... <laughs> Our seminars that we put on at uh, Oasis or Cavalry Community Church, I'm sure you guys have seen PVCI at some of our booths or at their booth at some of our seminars. Um, we've done several things at Cabela's Outreach, and they've had a booth there as well. So we encourage you to support PVCI, and uh, we can't thank Wayne enough for coming and uh, shedding a whole lot of information on all of us. We, we really, really appreciate it. Mikey, as always, we close you, close out in prayer. All right, Lord, did we just uh, we come to you, Lord, just uh, thankful, Lord, that we come to, and have a podcast and talk about your creation, Lord, and it's just amazing how you created the, the predator, Lord, for for our enjoyment and and how cool they are just to be able to watch and witness and and the mind that you gave them of the stealthfulness and and us as hunters, Lord, we we want to somehow mirror the predators that we hunt, and it's almost like the as a hunter, we're trying to hunt the ultimate predator, and I just thank you that we can have the opportunity, Lord, and I also thank you, Lord, that we hunt, have the opportunity to live in the state of Arizona and across this great country to have the opportunity to go out and hunt, Lord, and I just ask that you bless our listeners, Lord, bless our country, Lord, and bless our military. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.